0: Welcome to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. It was a time of rapid, terrifying, and exhilarating change. A time of scientific breakthroughs, mass politics, endless scandals, and efforts at reform. A time when new groups of Americans fought for, and sometimes won, their right to participate fully in American life, while others did their best to try and keep America as it was, or as they imagined it to be. With few heroes, many villains, great geniuses, and piercing questions, many of which still trouble us today. Welcome to Stumbling Colossus, a regular part of Avi's Conversational Corner covering the gilded and progressive ages of the United States, from the end of the Civil War to the end of the First World War. You can find this and other episodes of Avi's Conversational Corner at Google Podcasts and on Amazon Music. This episode's topic, The Battle of the Classics. America in the Gilded Age was changing not just economically or culturally, but also intellectually. New schools of thought, like progressivism and historicism, and the leaps and bounds made by science led the country's leading schools to increasingly question the value or even necessity of studying the wisdom of the past, specifically the classical works of Greek and Roman culture. The result was the Battle of the Classics. The first round in a seemingly unending debate about the utility or uselessness about what we broadly call the humanities. So, what were the arguments made on either side? Who won the battle? And what we ca- what can we learn about it for today? Here with me to answer this and other questions is Professor Eric Adler of the University of Maryland, author of the appropriately named The Battle of the Classics. Eric, welcome.
1: Thank you very much uh, for having me, Adler. Um, it's a pleasure to be here.
0: So let me start with the question I ask uh, all of my uh, interviewees or almost all of them. Let us imagine an erstwhile Alexis de Tocqueville or to be more specific for our context, a Matthew Arnold comes to visit the United States at the beginning of our period around say 1865 or six, the middle of our period, uh, the 1880s and 1890s and the end of our period in the 1920s to learn what is happening to America's institutions of higher education Uh, compared to what is going on in Europe and compared to itself. What would they find? What would have changed? What would have stayed the same?
1: That's a great question, Um, and it's actually quite appropriate because um, Matthew Arnold wrote um, and published in 1869 the book Culturing Anarchy, which in some senses was the kind of last gasp of Renaissance humanism, and and an argument for the classics and the value of the study of the uh, Greek and Roman classics um, that was really linked to, in his own way, certain kinds of Renaissance arguments about the value of classical study more generally. So I think Arnold would have seen, over the course of the Battle of the Classics, in which as you correctly suggested, there was a kind of fight about what the curriculum in American higher education ought to look like, and whether the classics should retain their spot as the bedrock of higher learning in the United States, or whether they should cede to a kind of elective curriculum. I think um, Arnold would have been horrified um, by what happened, but I think he would have seen it coming, in essence because the arguments in favor of the study of the classics had shifted dramatically in the course of the 19th century in the United States. Um, Previous that many people who had made arguments in favor of the classics had focused on the idea that's um, key to Renaissance Humanism about um, the classics offering a kind of window for people to better themselves, so that they could live up to their higher potentialities, so that there was a kind of moral and stylistic value to the study of the classics, that they had a certain kind of wisdom in them, great texts from classical antiquity had a kind of wisdom in them that would be useful for all educated people to have experienced, to an argument over the course of the Battle of the Classics, which dominates, which focused on the idea that the classics offer unparalleled so-called mental discipline. That they help you think, in other words, so that it's not an argument that suggests that these texts are particularly worthy uh, of thought, but rather that they're hard. And that argument, as I attempt to show in my book, really lost the argument that um, the classics are valuable for people to study in Latin and Greek because they help people think there's a losing argument over the course of the late 19th century, and I connect that with today because I think it's a losing argument for the modern humanities as well.
0: Fair enough. And I'd actually like to follow up on that because it was genuinely stunning for me to read the book. Uh, and as you said, Matthew Arnold was a contemporary uh, of, uh, of the United States at the beginning of this period. And i really like to know what happened that all these people who taught the classics, they'd been teaching the classics for generations, what, what caused this massive loss of self-confidence?
1: No, there was a loss of a certain kind of self-confidence, although I guess the argument that the classics are valuable because they help you think is a kind of self-confidence, too. Um, so, you no, know, this is also the kind of argument that people offer today, uh, which I try to suggest is a corollary to what people were offering in the Battle of the Classics, which is that the humanities um, uh, imbue you with skills in critical thinking. So, I'm not so sure that 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 argument, which I try to argue in my book as a losing argument, it lost in the battle of the classics and is going to lose today as a defense of the modern humanities, I'm not so sure that that shows a lack of confidence, but I do think it shows a complete difference from earlier arguments about what the humanities can do. So that it used to be seen, both in antiquity to some extent, I think you can see this in the writings of Cicero, but most assuredly in the early Italian humanists from the Renaissance, that there was a kind of moral value to reading these works and that they could make you um, live the good life, so you could understand what a good life is by learning from these canonical books. And instead, there was a kind of shift, which said that um, they, they sort of didn't believe in that anymore, and instead sort of focused on the idea that the classics are kind of useful mental gymnastics. Um, that you learn how to think better because you learn these hard languages. The problem with that argument, as I try to show in my book, is that the people making that argument in the, in the Battle of the Classics had no proof that that was true, that learning Latin and Greek was sort of harder than learning German or learning chemistry or something like that. So it was a losing argument. I don't know if I would necessarily see this, however, as a kind of lack of confidence, but it is a, a fundamental philosophical shift from what the humanities can do, from focusing on the idea of humanism, living up to people's, people's higher potentialities, to one that's a kind of technocratic, skills-based learning-how-to-think model. Um, and I do try to suggest in my book that there were changes that happened in the course of um, the 19th century in American higher education, first in Germany to, uh, and then spread into America, that led, I think, to these kinds of changes in argument and a movement away from humanism toward a kind of scientific understanding of education.
0: Fascinating. Um, so your um your book focuses, and probably rightly so, because they were the preeminent institutions, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and so forth. Um, was the, did, the battle, did the battle play out the same way in, say, state universities or uh, local seminaries, Were they all basically, whatever Harvard does, all do, uh, or was there more of a, a dialogue and give and take in that respect?
1: That's a great question, too. Thank you so much, Abby. Um One thing that I think we see over American educational history, and this is true today, um, but it was certainly true in the late 19th century as well, is that there's unbelievable focus on a small number of very elite institutions, and there's a lot of copy pattern going on from other institutions um, as well, so that people are really watching what these elite institutions do, and oftentimes they're mirroring the sort of curriculum and the sort of ideas that you see in these kinds of institutions. And so one of the reasons why, the sort of chief reason why my book focuses so much attention on Harvard and Princeton and so forth is because that's what Americans cared about. That's what was being written about at the time, and that was, was being read. In the same way that, say, uh, a year or so ago, Princeton's Classics Department, the said it wasn't going to have Latin and Greek required of its undergraduate majors anymore, and a huge fuss came out in the American press about this, and people wrote about it in the Atlantic, and the New York Times, and so forth. My department at the University of Maryland um, doesn't require Latin and Greek for its majors. It hasn't it for a decade, maybe even more, and no one wrote anything about it, because no one in cared. So a lot of the energy um, in American higher education, as far as the public is concerned, focuses on these elite institutions. That was true in the late 19th century and the early 20th century, and that's true today.
0: Cool. So if I may push back a bit and uh, play devil's advocate here, because I happen to be on your side uh, of the argument. Um, from what from what you describe in your own book, um, a lot of the instruction uh, in 19th century universities uh, in America before there was this great shift uh, due to winds blowing from Germany and whatnot, it sounds like there was definitely a lot of memorization, a lot of uh, skill building in terms of understanding Greek and Latin, but I didn't really get the impression that there was all that much focus on the kind of higher Renaissance ideals that uh, defenders of the humanities used to use. That it develops a life of the mind. That it makes people uh, uh, live the good life. Uh, maybe is it possible that when the pe- when the people came in to attack the classics, they were attacking a, a, a departments that had kind of neglected their own mission.
1: Uh, I think you're exactly right, actually. I wouldn't even see that necessarily as a kind of pushback. I think one of the reasons why the arguments in favor of the classics were so dry and unconvincing and kind of skills-based as opposed to content-based was because the instruction uh, in the 19th century in American higher education in the classics was oftentimes, it appears, rather dry and insipid and focused on memorization and kind of gerund grinding and looking away from what in the Renaissance was perceived to be the actual goals of higher education. Now, there were, I think, certain pragmatic reasons for why this was the case. Um, universities or colleges in America at this time paid really poorly, so as a result, they typically had people on their faculties who hadn't done much study themselves. They were oftentimes recent college graduates, so they barely had a grasp on the classics themselves. Um, there wasn't serious graduate training in America at this time, and so one would have to go to Germany in order to get it, so people weren't necessarily well versed in it. So it was easier, in a sense, to turn the classroom into a kind of German grinding and memorization than it was to use the classics for the kind of higher purpose. Um, So it is true that I think one of the reasons why people turn to these sorts of, well, the classics help you think, and they're useful for mental discipline, is that it is really hard to make the argument that the classics give you a window into what your life could possibly be like and how you could live up to your higher potentialities. So in some senses, the problem wasn't so much a problem of argument, although it became a problem of argument in the late 19th century in the Battle of the Classics, but there was an earlier problem of pedagogy. In which there was a movement away from Renaissance ideals toward this kind of gerrym grinding, which naturally led away from humanist arguments for the classics in favor of these kinds of mental disciplines, sorts of arguments, which, as I argue in my book, are losing arguments.
0: Okay, so having been defeated uh, and and basically defeating themselves, and as you note in the book, uh, there were various uh, heroic attempts to revive the classics uh, by people like uh, Irving Babbitt. Uh, and Mortimer Adler, uh, let's shift focus a little bit to today uh, and ask uh, three questions, I think, that uh, are on a lot of people's minds whenever we're discussing and debating the humanities, their relevance to the 21st century. So let's start with the question of the canon. Uh, one of the, uh, I happen to believe that uh, I can't, canons are unavoidable. You don't just see them in uh, in humanities, you see them uh, it, often in sciences, you uh, certainly see them in popular culture. Nobody, no, nobody who is skeptical of the canon, I think, will uh, say uh, rank mo- rank uh, movies according to a random distribution. However, um, one of the and you note that this is correct. That one of the problems that um, that universities ran into was that uh, America was even then becoming increasingly diverse, and now it's also also increasingly diverse. So you can't just focus on Greco-Roman. So I took a look at uh, Harold Bloom's effort at making an expansive, universal, global canon, and it's a very impressive effort. Uh, but I have to say, uh, as you, uh, it's the number of books is just absolutely overwhelming. Like, how many professors have even read all of these books, let alone deeply understood them? Is the effort to universalize everything not just doomed to failure because it's just so mind-boggling, even if we set aside various issues of, like, dead white men and whatnot?
1: Um, Thank you again for uh, another really thoughtful question. Um, So I also, in the final chapter of my book, try to offer what I call an omnicultural canon. Uh, A canon of great works, I think. They come from a variety of different cultures and times, um, which can focus on this problem of the one and the many that is key to Plato and also key to the thought of Babbitt. Because I, like you, believe that we need to have a canon that's much more representative um, in the United States of the kind of pluralism that we have, and also I am worried about a certain kind of cultural chauvinism that could come up from too narrow a canon, whether that's a canon that's focused merely on Latin and Greek, authors from uh, antiquity, which I think to us is obviously, you know, too narrow, or even just one that focuses on the sort of traditional authors of the West. Um, I would say, however, that just because you can come up with a large number of texts for a canon doesn't mean that students are going to be introduced to each and every one of them during the course of their four years of college. Um, that obviously you have to pick and choose, and that's true even if you just focus on the classical canon, or if you focus on the Western canon, you can't read everything, and not every professor is going to be an expert in all these areas as well. But I think you can still pick and choose reasonably um, from some great works that will make people think, and that will hopefully encourage those people once they graduate from college to continue in their reading and thinking about great works. So, again, I don't think the fact that there are a lot of choices to make, and there are a lot of hard choices to make, means that we shouldn't make any choices at all, and we should just leave it up to the whims of someone who's uneducated what their curriculum might be to be. Instead, I think that that means that individual professors, individual colleges should try to come up with um, an omnicultural canon that makes some sense, recognizing that that's not going to be the end point of people's reading over the course of their lives.
0: Sounds great. Um, If I may uh, then ask from the other direction, because um, I, I, as people who follow me on Twitter know, am a generally conservative individual, uh, and I have a love-hate relationship with academia due to that. one of the things that bothers me about critical thinking, and even Irving—you mentioned Irving Babbitt—talks about thinking critically, is that there is nothing easier today. Especially, uh, we've had a couple of centuries of modernity, uh, and everybody's all, and, and the country and and the world is hyper-democratic, where everybody everybody's opinion is equal. There is nothing easier than to constantly question and undermine and dismiss anything that came before us as irrelevant outdated and so forth how would one properly teach not unquestioningly as dogma but how would one properly teach the works of the past not just with apologetics of well this is this was the past that's not now because that we're mentioning losing arguments that kind of says okay so i'll say that was okay for the past that's not that's fine for now how do we how does one teach I guess for lack of a better term, reverence and respect uh, for the great works of the past, even while uh, not accepting uh, their word as dogma.
1: That's a good question. You've really come up with a long list of really good and powerful and, and questions. Um, one thing I would say is that it's most important to compel students to read these works, or at least a number of these works. I fear that a number of people who are rather critical of these sorts of things actually haven't engaged firsthand with them. And I would also note that the kind of system of American higher education that dominates the curriculum, the kind of distribution system of general education, according to which students have to take, say, a humanities class or two, but it doesn't really matter what the subject matter of that class happens to be. It could be comic books, or it could be Homer. It makes difference that's not a good way to introduce these subjects because in essence you're telling students right off the bat you have a better sense of what it means to be an educated person than those people who are trying to educate you, because all the choices should be yours, and we're going to give you basically no guidance about things. That itself enforces a kind of presentism that sees the past as unimportant. Because obviously, if you can choose for yourself exactly what you need to study without any kind of input from anybody, well, then what value is the past anyway? What value are previous generations um, for you in any sense? Because they have, in some sense, we're saying through the curriculum, they have nothing to offer. It's all up to you. So I think that the, kind of, the sense of the curriculum itself, the way the Curriculum works reinforces certain kinds of malign tendencies in our culture to dismiss the importance of the past. And then I would suggest that um, it's not necessarily terribly difficult in the classroom. I, as some of the teachers that I have to do this all the time, in fact, um, to try to get students to recognize the applicability of these works to their own lives, and that does mean that these works are going to offer us certain insights, perhaps, about human nature, what justice is, what goodness is, what the human predicament is, and so forth, and that one of the reasons these works have become canonical is that people throughout centuries have believed that the works do this, that they're of a special quality in looking at particular foreign problems associated with human existence. At the same time, that does not mean that if you just read Aristotle, you just say, I'm an Aristotelian, there's nothing Aristotle said that was wrong in any way, perform that's obviously visible so the relationship of the past to the present and the use of the past properly in the present i think is one of the most important aspects of american higher education or else the past really doesn't matter in some sense if we're just going to sort of say oh it's just wrong or it's just entirely right um so i think we need to encourage the kind of attitude in the students that they actually have something to learn from the past. It's not just a catalog of errors, but there are certain ways in which people in the past looked at things that are helpful for us as we're trying to live our lives in the present. I think that having a curriculum that is based on a kind of required group of core courses is going to do that much better than the choose-your-own-adventure curriculum, which suggests by its very nature, the path doesn't matter at all.
0: That's a really good response. Um, and if I may expand uh, on my previous question, I was talking about hyper-democratic. Um, I think as you mentioned it, I think you mentioned it briefly in your book about how the the classics was traditionally the the gentleman's education or the previously the aristocracy's uh, education that of people who did not have to worry too much about money troubles uh, the people who were expected indeed to lead society and be uh, either elected leaders or be senior officials um, if Imagine for a second that uh, that I am someone who comes from, I guess, a lower middle or a middle class uh, background or someone's trying to make uh, just manage to move up in the world professionally and who might not necessarily have the time or the energy to develop the kind of idealized life of the mind uh, imagined by the Renaissance. What would you say the classics or at least the humanities broadly uh, has to offer me?
1: Another great question. Um, First off, I would say that it is certainly true that the early American colleges were much narrower in the kinds of students who went to them. A much smaller percentage of Americans went, it was only men in the early days, and so forth. I would note, however, that it was not only wealthy people who went to college, there were some poor people, and actually college was rather cheap at that time, so it was mostly the the issue of you not being able to work for a few years um, and going to college instead, rather than huge tuition costs, which is more a problem today than it was then. So um, it is the case that a number of poor Americans went to these kinds of of schools in earlier days. Um, At the same time, I would suggest that, and I think this is one thing that I try to suggest in my book, that all Americans can benefit from a kind of education that is steeped in humanism, that is steeped in allowing people to think about what it means to be a good person and how one can lead a satisfying life. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone has to translate Latin and Greek fluently, um, and everyone's going to get a PhD in classes, nor does it mean that everyone's going to major in a humanistic subject, but I do think that that does mean that Americans should go through, who go to college, should experience uh, uh, the humanities as well, and not in the sense of just take one class, it doesn't matter what the topic is, but take some classes that introduce you to some of the greatest thought in the humanities that will allow you to ponder life's great questions. I think it's very dangerous for Americans, no matter where they find themselves socioeconomically, no matter where they are ethnically, or their gender, or what have you, that they just get a vocational education on their own, and that they get no training at all to think about some of the great questions of life, and then we just send them out into the world, and we naively think that they're going to make the world a better place. This is what colleges always say about what their students do. They go out and make the world a better place. But how can we presume that people are really going to make the world a better place if they never thought about values? never seriously part what it means to be a good person. There's a kind of naivete about that, which I think does lead to the kinds of people we have oftentimes who are leading society today, who naively believe that they're making the world a better place. Um, a lot of these sort of Silicon Valley tech giants say this. Well so I came up with this app because it makes the world a better place. We reality, they're enriching themselves and making teenagers miserable and so forth. So I think that... The pondering of values, the pondering of what it means to be a good person, the pondering of how one might live up to one's higher potentialities is actually crucial for individual flourishing, but also for civilization uh, overall. And that does not mean that everyone's going to get the exact education that Petrarch recommended for uh, for people. But it does mean that, I think, over the course of college, people should be introduced to this so they can think about these kinds of questions. And it's actually one of the, the most awful things about colleges today that most colleges don't really introduce students to those sorts of subjects at all.
0: Well, that's a great way to end off, uh, and you have given us a lot of food for thought, and I hope our, uh, our listeners uh, po- ponder these questions very deeply. Professor Adler, thank you very much for coming on. It's been a, ple- a pleasure. Thank you very much, Abby. It was It
1: was lovely to be here.